this unique Sunday, uh, an unprecedented week in the life of our church. And so today, we have no gathered worship in any of our six locations, and instead, we gather as a church online. And so as such, you'll see leaders from all six of our locations to lead us as a family today in worship. And we are one family. Bethany has always been one church, and we are now one church in different locations around the city. We worship together this morning in a unique time, as Scott mentioned. This has been a disruptive week. This has been a difficult week for many across our city. In my own town of Kirkland, we made front page news with the different things that have been happening in our community, with the hospital and the senior centers that have been affected by this moment. We want to acknowledge that as we gather together for worship today. We also want to acknowledge that our response to that is to come together in worship and to live our lives in light of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, even in our current situation. Yeah, at Bethany North, we worship in a school, so for the weeks to come, we can't gather in the normal ways. So we feel this acutely, but more importantly than our traditions is the health of our community. And so we sit in this tension between sadness and lament and also the fact that Christ is with us and for us and has always been gathering the church. It has been these times in the past where the church has had a witness to the world, going to serve and to care for. Uh, So we today, this morning, uh, aim to do just that, where we aim to uh, protect the legacy of Christ in this city. And at Bethany, uh, for 104 years, we've been inviting people to God and to community and to wholeness, and God has been good to us, and Christ has been proclaimed. And so without uh, shame, we are proclaiming our hope is in Jesus Christ this morning. And so we will gather today to worship Jesus together. And as we begin our time together in worship, we're going to invite all of you, wherever you're gathered, to join us in this shared word of prayer. You can be at home watching on your screen. You can be at a tablet. You could be sitting in a coffee shop. And we'll invite you to share these words with us. They're going to be up on the screen in a moment. And we'll begin our time in worship by sharing this prayer together. Would you join me as we pray? Gracious God, we gather today to honor you and worship you. Thank you for walking closely with each of us this week. Thank you for providing. You are the giver of life, and we are grateful. As we begin our time together, we hold out to you our burdens, our worries, our fears. We surrender this time to you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified across our church family today. We pray for our city, that the light of Christ would shine during this dark and difficult time revealing the hope of Jesus to all. Be glorified as we worship in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's worship God.
Again, for I be. 
Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for that affirmation of our faith, uh, these beliefs and these hopes that unite us even in distance this morning. And God, we pray that you would move among us in the city, that you would move among us uh, this morning, Lord, for your glory. We love you. In your name, amen. Good morning. My name is Brad Thayer. I'm from Bethany Ballard, and this morning as we turn to a time of giving, it's going to look a bit different than normal. Obviously, there's no one in this room, and we're not going to come to your house with plates and knock on the door, although we did think about it, but it would be weird. So, if you haven't yet, this is a great time to begin to give online and utilize our online giving platform. It's quick, it's easy, and for the vast majority of our church, they already use this tool when it comes to giving. So this is a great time to start. You can give online by clicking the link above, or you can give by texting the keyword church BCC to the numbers 77977. Your gifts enable us to continue to do the ministry to, uh, with our city and in response to the increased needs that have arisen due to this virus. Historically, challenging events like this have turned into opportunities for the church to shine. In fact, when the plagues hit the Roman Empire, it was the Christians who were mobilized and instrumental to the health of the city of Rome. The prophet Jeremiah pleads to Israel that while they're in the midst of exile, to seek the welfare of the city in which they live. So in the middle of our chaos in which we find ourselves, this becomes an opportunity for us as a church to reflect Christ to a world who is desperately in need for his peace. Prentice? Well, I want to take this morning uh, just a moment to, to just pray uh, for what's happening, not just within our own church, but around our community. So wherever you're at, uh, in front of a computer at home or at a coffee shop, would you just take a moment to bow your heads with me uh, to pray uh, together as a community. God, we pray for those uh, directly affected uh, by this illness and, and their families. Uh, we mourn with those who mourn, with those uh, who have lost their lives. And to those uh, that are sick, God, may we pray for them, may we believe for them, and we know that you are a God of healing. We also pray for those affected around, uh, in, uh, in and around our community, our cities, and really across the globe of our hourly wage workers, our local businesses, especially here uh, in Seattle. God, we pray for the health workers, the professionals in the hospitals uh, that are working the front lines. God, would you bring them discernment and protection and uh, may they feel valued and so loved and appreciated for the work that they are doing. God, we pray for those that are marginalized, the vulnerable, including those, uh, especially refugees that are coming to our city right now uh, through our friends, World Relief. God, we pray for, for them. We pray that they would be humanized, that they will be cared for, that we as a community would come around and care for them and with them. We pray for school teachers and administrators that you give them wisdom and guidance on how to lead uh, our young children and what the next steps would be in Seattle and the neighborhoods around. God, we pray for the elderly, the language that we've been using. Would you bring them compassion and, and may they feel a sense of kindness 
and the language that we use forgive us for the ways that we have devalued their humanity. So we pray for the elderly, and may they feel as human as all of us, despite the language that we use. God, in all in all, we pray for the fear that we may feel as a city, as a country, as a world. May we not be driven by fear or anxiety, but may we be led with wisdom and discernment. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. i mm-hmm.
pastors at Bethany Northeast. Hi, I'm Raul Perez. Uh, I'm pastor at Bethany North, and we will be your scripture readers this morning. Our first scripture this morning is uh, a reading from Psalm 77, which is a psalm of Asaph. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, my spirit grows faint. You've held my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I'll meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. You're the God who works wonders. You've made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Joseph and Jacob. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, out of respect for the power of the gospel witness of our Lord Jesus Christ, I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Stand as I read John 13, 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. He then poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Raul. Thank you, Jack. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome. It is truly, truly so good to be with you. Uh, my name is Abby Odio. I am a pastor here at our Bethany Green Lake location. And I want to say a special welcome to this morning to those of you joining us online, which happens to be all of you this morning um, across our various Seattle locations. 
Praise God for technology that allows us to be together in worship this morning. We know it's a unique Sunday for us as a church. Uh, After a wild and unpredictable week for those of us living in the greater Seattle area, In just a matter of days, the wellness um, of our city has become a point of anxiety and worry for many as the COVID-19 outbreak has spread and as we've taken steps to uh, to keep that contained. Many of us have been hyper-tuned into the news waiting to hear statistics regarding the virus and what the latest is in our area. In an effort to be extra cautious, some of us have been working from home while others simply don't have that luxury. And so you've tried to carry on as normal. Uh, College classes have been moved online. First grade classes for some of you have been moved online. Whether we work in healthcare or as a teacher or as a stay at home parent, the reality is that this week, all of our spheres have been impacted. We've grieved the tragic loss of life, um, most of which has been connected to the Life Care Center in Kirkland, a home not too far from our east side location. If I'm being completely honest, I've lost a bit of sleep myself this week with a three-month-old baby at home and a 94-year-old grandmother nearby. Simply put, it's been a disorienting time for all of us. Some of you feel that right now as you're wishing you could be in worship in person, but you're watching it on your screen for maybe the first time ever. And without downplaying the circumstances that we find ourselves in this week, the truth is that COVID-19, that what we've experienced together as a city, um, has really exposed for many of us an underlying truth which is always, always present, but given the week we've had, we've experienced this in a new way, and that truth is this, virus or no virus, we never know how things will play out. Virus or no virus, at the end of the day, even existing as we do in one of the most tech-savvy, one of the most privileged cities in the entire world, I'm not in control. I live very comfortably most of the time with the illusion that somehow that's not true, the illusion that somehow I do hold outcomes, that I know what tomorrow will hold, but at the end of the day, I don't. And that's the case not just this week when that reality is sort of palpable everywhere we go. It's true all the time. There was a moment this week when that became abundantly clear to me. I have a two-year-old son. His name is Mark. And uh, he was uh, sitting, I was sitting on the couch reading yet another kind of news update about this COVID-19 situation. And my two-year-old was playing on his toddler-safe stool uh, at the sink. We had bubbles going uh, because this was my brilliant parenting hack for keeping his hands clean. But what happened in the next moment was not a brilliant parenting, brilliant parenting hack. Um, engrossed as I was in this article, I neglected to keep an eye on him for just a moment. And when I did look up, I realized he had climbed on top of the countertop and was holding one of our liquid ant traps in his hand. And not only was he holding it in his hand, but he had it right here close to his mouth. And he was saying, mommy, I eat this candy. Mommy, I eat this candy. 
Now, I immediately grabbed the thing out of his hand, and fear not, he's alive. The story ends well. Um, we called all the necessary parties. It turns out there are certain things that are poisonous to ants that aren't poisonous to humans. Praise God for that. But all that's to say, I was struck by this parallel of events in which I'm anxiously sort of sidetracked by one threat. All the while, there's this immediate threat right in front of me, this killer ant candy, if you will. And I realize if it's not the ant killer trap, it's him falling off the stool or eating dog food or poking his brother's eyes with a fork. All these situations are hypothetical, of course. But you get the idea, it's not, it's easy to live with this illusion that somehow we hold the reins when we simply do not. I read another article this week about a a children's hospital in Syria where every person in that hospital, kids included, know the threefold warning system and what that warning system means. If they see a flashing yellow light, it means there's warplanes nearby. If those lights flash red, it means there's active bombing happening in the area. And if those lights flash blue, it means that there are injured children en route to that hospital. I share that story again, not to subtract from our collective experience this week, but to say that for our brothers and sisters in Syria, living in the midst of a nine-year war, friends, the unknown is the rule, not the exception. And at some point in our story, we're all brought face to face with the hardest of human truths, which is this, we are human. We're vulnerable. No matter how many times we wash our hands to the tune of happy birthday, we cannot change that. And it's hard. And so today we gather as a church, albeit a bit differently this week, to ask that same age old question that we ask faithfully week after week. It has guided the church in seasons of plenty and it's guided the church in seasons of scarcity. And that question is, it's at the core of who Bethany is as a community. And that question is this, what does it mean on this day in this particular moment in history that God has placed us to be a people of hope, to be the lived embodiment of hope. What does it mean to be the church? That question brings us to our scripture that you heard read today from Psalm 77. We're in a series on the Psalm. This is the Psalm we were planning on teaching this week. It's likely one that was written by a man named Asaph, a a leader within the Israelite community. We don't know a lot about this person, but we do know he is living in the midst of chaos. Just from the content of what he prays, we know he is living in a world that has absolutely been turned upside down. And as we study this ancient prayer together, we see this sort of two-part invitation for us as the church today in this moment, which is this, we lament and we remember. We lament, and we remember. So that's where we're going today, and as we do that, as we look at God's word together, would you please pray with me? Father God, we trust um, in this moment that you are indeed a God of hope. God, wherever we sit in this moment, whatever we hold in this moment, we take a breath, take just a moment of holy silence, and even if that doesn't feel true, we name it. 
God, we ask that today, like other days, your holy scripture would guide us, would lead us, would change us, would form us to be more and more people who reflect your person, Jesus, to a world that needs so desperately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first invitation that we see in Psalm 77 is this practice of lament, to lament. Now, I know lament is one of those words that can feel kind of churchy, kind of archaic, but really it's just a verb that means an honest and heartfelt expression of pain, sadness, or brokenness. Interestingly, uh, these hard and honest prayers of lament are the largest single category of prayer in the book of Psalms. That means nearly one-third of this book was written as a means of giving voice to pain and struggle. We hear this honest struggle in verse 2 of Psalm 77, where the author prays, In the night my hand was stretched out with weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. Now the word here that's used for hand can also be translated in Hebrew to mean wound. We see that in other places like the book of Job. And the imagery evoked is that of a painful blow, of a wound open, exposed, vulnerable before God. Now if you're like me, you hear this prayer and your immediate response is, let's fix it. Let's change it. Let's ignore it. Let's distract ourselves from it. Let's do whatever with it, but certainly don't expose it. Like that is, of all the options, the worst option. And yet, as uncomfortable as it may be, this is precisely what the book of Psalms, what this lament invites us to do. This is precisely what this psalm gives us language to do. Now, why is that? Well, if we look back over the trajectory of scripture, we see over and over again where Jesus moved people from a place of hurt to healing, from a place of brokenness to wholeness. And yet these stories, they always begin with a profound insistence on the part of Jesus that we honestly and sometimes even courageously are able to name and to enter places of pain. Many of you are familiar with that story that Raul read for us from John 13. It's the night before Jesus is crucified and he's gathered together with his disciples, his closest followers, and he does something so utterly unexpected and odd. He moves around the room and he begins to wash their feet. Now this is a wild move on Jesus' part because we know in Jewish culture that feet were uh, considered unclean. People walked around all day on dirty, dusty roads. We didn't have modern sewage at that time. They were wearing sandals, and so feet carried with them this sort of negative connotation. Thus, it makes sense that when Jesus gets to Peter, one of his followers, Peter emphatically opposes what's happening. See, for Jesus to wash his feet would be a terrible reversal of a particular cultural and uh, sacred norm, which said this, don't expose yourself. Don't exhibit weakness. Don't be real. And in this moment, Jesus responds with this curious and bold challenge to that norm. He says this, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me. In other words, unless you can be with me in this way that is real, unless you can entrust your exposure to me, complete with your fear and your worry and your anxiety and your anger and even your lack of faith, unless you can do that, come before me with hand and wound wide open. You're going to miss something, Peter. 
It's interesting, what Jesus gets at in this moment, it mirrors how God created and actually wired us to live in trusting and transformational relationships with others. There's, I'm sure people listening to this message, uh, you're connected to the world of psychology and you're familiar with something called object relations theory. Very simply put, this theory engages the notion that in order for a, a growing infant to develop a healthy sense of self, a healthy sense of self in the world, they need a parent who will respond appropriately to their needs in the very earliest days of their life. Their bids for food, for comfort, for help. They need someone who will meet them and care for them in their exposure. I have a three-month-old at home, and I can say with confidence, for those of you who might not know or have forgotten, that an infant is nothing if not utterly and completely helpless. The first three months of life are essentially one big lament. But what the study of the human psyche has revealed to us is that there's this profound and essential bond formed, not in spite of the child expressing authentic need and feeling, but precisely because of it. Because of it, faith and trust in the child is formed. The theologian Walter Brueggemann sums this idea well when he asserts that the outcome of a faith without lament is a false self. A bad faith that is based in fear and guilt and lived out as a resentful or self-deceptive work of righteousness. It's like an infant who never learns to trust. They're on their own in life. That's what we become without lament. And we see the reality of this play out all too often in our faith communities. Without lament, our pain becomes deep-seated and unaddressed resentment. You may not Notice it, but let me tell you, your spouse will, your kids will, your friends will. Without lament, our ego convinces us that we have everything under control and we become people like the Pharisees who say we need God, but we don't live that way. Without lament, injustice goes overlooked. We lose touch with the language that always keeps the vulnerable in mind, that demands change towards God, God's kingdom. I mentioned I have a two-year-old son at home, um, and he's just the age where he's sort of developing language skills. And so part of what we're trying to do is give him words to express how it is that he's feeling. So the other day, he was um, really upset because uh, the snowman in the book that we were reading couldn't come to life and be his friend. Uh, instead, it had to stay in the book and be imaginary. We've all been there before. And so I said to him, uh, Mark, use your words. Tell me what it is you're feeling. He's just a mess. He's crumpled up on the floor. He's having a two-year-old meltdown. I said, tell mom, what is it that you're feeling? And he's sobbing. And through his tears, he says, I feel, I feel happy. Really? I said, you feel happy? Yes, more tears. Happy, more tears. Clearly, we have some work to do on attaching our words and our feelings. Now, I share this story because so often I feel like this is what we do in church. We're in the midst of something difficult, a season where we don't sense God's presence or a week where our anxiety is really high or we're profoundly angry about an injustice we've experienced. And instead of naming that, instead of risking the exposure, we can proclaim happy. I'm happy. You're not happy. As if to say, not my feet, Jesus. Don't expose my soul. See, the invitation of Psalm 77, the first 10 verses, 
this chapter, they compel us to be more like the infant and less like the two-year-old. More like Asaph, who is so troubled, he is blaming God. He is calling into question the very things that make God, God. And friends, if we believe that scripture is God-breathed, notice God's response to this question isn't, how dare you ask me that? God's response is this, let's put it in the Bible. Let's call it holy. Let's make sure these words of lament are never lost, that people never forget how to be real with me. And in this rather mysterious way, becoming a person of authentic hope in our world requires that sometimes we express our lack of it. It's only in our exposure that, like Peter, we truly come to know the depth of God's care. Give me your feet, Peter. I mentioned I had some moments of heightened anxiety this past week, kind of in regard to the the chaos of what was happening around us in our city, but uh, also due to a couple close friends who are walking through some pretty serious uh, and unrelated health concerns. Um, But at one point about midway through the week, I was overwhelmed with this worry for my one friend, and I'm sitting in my car about to drive away, actually just outside Bethany Green Lake here, and uh, something happened to me that hasn't happened in many, many years, but my hands began to cramp up, and uh, it was like a, a small kind of subtle panic attack that I was having, and it was so amazing because in that moment, my first thought was, man, Abby, you're a bad pastor, <laughs> you're not supposed to feel anxious right now. You're not supposed to be the weak one. There's this voice in my head saying, toughen up, get it together. Come on, be the person that tells everyone it's gonna be okay. And because I've been studying this Psalm of Lament, God's spirit prompted me in that moment with a different way forward. Try lament. Stop embracing shame, be honest. So I did, just out here, I sat in my car and I I prayed, I said, God, I'm angry that my friend has to walk through this. And I don't just mean angry generally, I am angry at you. I wanna have faith right now, but I feel weary. And I know this isn't part of your design. But where are you? Here's what didn't happen didn't change my circumstances. This particular friend's problem wasn't magically resolved in that moment. But what did happen is that prayer opened the door for me to experience God, not in spite of my circumstances, but right where I actually was. So that's where we begin. We begin with lament. We begin with this utter honesty with God. And then there's this shift. The invitation to lament becomes an invitation to remember. But before we look at that second invitation, I want to briefly just name a subtle encouragement that it's easy to miss, but that we kind of sits as the hinge or the, the bridge between these two invitations to lament and to remember. And that encouragement uh, comes to us Uh, through this curious little Hebrew word, selah, which appears three times in Psalm 77. 
It's a word that stands alone apart from um, a particular phrase or stanza. And most scholars agree that the original meaning of this particular word has been lost. That's why it remains in many of our English translations uh, in the original Hebrew, selah, you'll see it there. But most scholars also agree that when looked at in the context and with sort of regard to Jewish tradition, selah indicates uh, a meaning, something to this effect, pause, slow down, ponder, be silent, reflect. The late pastor uh, and theologian Eugene Peterson talked about something he calls the injured imagination. And he notes that when we have enough pain in our story, we understandably begin to develop something called, he calls the injured imagination, where we can no longer imagine an outcome beyond our present place of hurt. He says when this happens, we quickly start jumping to sort of these worst case scenarios. And what is beautiful about Psalm 77 is that it gives us language to be honest with God about our human struggle, but it also gives us this space in the form of a pause to keep that struggle from being the singular truth our heart and minds can imagine. Keeps us from being entirely swallowed up by that hard reality. In verse nine, the psalmist asks this really, maybe one of the heaviest questions anyone in the Bible ever asks. Has God in his anger withdrawn his compassion? This is one of the greatest challenges to the character and nature of God that a person might think of. And immediately following that lament is this selah, is this pause, is this space. It's as though Asaph is allowing the weight of that question room to breathe, perhaps giving himself space to hear God answer. Now to be clear, these holy pauses, they're not a way of distancing ourselves from what may be going on within us, but they are a means of pausing long enough to bring that reality into God's story. To entertain the truth, um, to entertain that the truth of our reality while real is not exhaustive. Does that make sense? It's not the whole picture. So this week, I'd encourage you to make space for this practice of holy pausing. Man, if if you've had a week like like I've had, we need that. Take a walk around the block, say la. For goodness sake, turn off the news. (laughs) Just for a moment and sit in the quiet, say la. As you shift from one activity to the next, leave a bit of a buffer. Focus on your breathing while you wash your hands. Trust that God is in that silence. God is in that holy space. So we see this psalm, uh, in this psalm, an invitation to lament and then to sort of pause with that lament. And then finally, we do this, we remember. We remember. As you read through the psalm, you'll notice uh, that shift that happens in verse 11 where the author moves their focus from a place of sort of internal chaos and pain to praying these words, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of old. And then as you heard Jack read, the psalmist goes on to verbally remember Israel's history, to recall these powerful moments in which God intervened and rescued Israel. He sent Moses and Aaron when they were slaves in Egypt. And Israel escaped. They came through the Great Red Sea. Great Red Sea. They believed they were at the end, but there was this way forward. 
And the psalmist makes a point of remembering all this. Now, most of us hear that word remember, and we tend to think of sort of this psychological exercise in which we simply bring something to mind. For instance, I remember uh, to ans- the answer to this test question because I studied it last night. Or for others of us, it might be, I wish I could remember the answer to this test question. I should have studied more last night. But this sort of remembering is very different from what is implied by the Hebrew word that we see here, which is zakar. And it means to remember. But in Hebrew, that word, it's always connected to an action. It always implies action. Thus, to zakar means to engage our hands and our feet and our body in whatever action that remembrance requires. Let me say a bit more about that. Uh, When I was growing up, our family lived right off kind of the main I-5 corridor. That's the main freeway that runs up the west coast of um, Washington. And we lived right off that main freeway. And off of our kind of rural exit, there was a Dairy Queen. And I remember growing up, um, my siblings and I developed this thing that we would do every time we got off the freeway. Instead of overtly petitioning my parents to stop at Dairy Queen and get ice cream, Uh, we would simply say, remember that time we went to Dairy Queen and we got ice cream and it was so fun. And for some reason, my parents thought this tactic was so endearing that 90% of the time it would work every time. In scripture, the word remember serves a similar function. It's participatory, it's action-oriented. God remembers Noah and so God acts by causing the floodwaters to cease. Some of you will remember the story um, in the Old Testament when Joseph uh, interprets a dream of uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer. He begs him, Zakar, like remember me. It's a call to action, a call to act favorably towards me because of what I've done for you. Thus, when uh, Asaph uses the word Zakar here, he's not merely jogging his memory for a sentimental thought that will bring him a moment of respite from his present struggle. That's not it at all. When Asaph uses the word, he's actually acknowledging his role, his place, his activity in this incredible story of deliverance that God has written. He's taking his reality, the things in his life in that moment that are hard, unpredictable, beyond his control, and by remembering, he's inserting all of that into this narrative of hope, of seas parting, of people being saved, of people coming through the water. Friends, by remembering God's story, God's saving action, it becomes not just this feel-good thing for us, it becomes our story, it becomes Asaph's story. About a month ago, I watched the movie Harriet. Some of you may have seen that. It's a film that tells the story of Harriet Tubman and her heroic efforts to help enslaved people to freedom, despite the unimaginable risks that were involved um, just personally for her. And I was so moved by the story, I also realized that I know embarrassingly little about her life. So I began to do some research. And in my research, I stumbled across an interview with Cynthia Erivo, who's the actress that plays Harriet's character in the movie. And Cynthia shared that there were scenes in this film that because of their utter intensity, she just had a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry about actually filming them. They were difficult for her to get through. But she said one of the things, actually the thing that helped her was to take these prayers of Harriet Tubman and pray them herself before she'd walk in to film a difficult scene. Many of you know Harriet Tubman had an incredible prayer life. 
And then in this part of the interview, this is the part I found so profound, Cynthia Arrivo said this, she said, over time I realized it didn't feel like I was just saying these prayers as Harriet. I felt like I was saying it as me. She finished with these words, throughout the film what I noticed was my faith was getting stronger. The idea that faith can really bring you through something, I had an intense experience of, oh, okay, I get it now. I understand. See, friends, in a similar way, this is what the Psalms of Lament, this is what Psalm 77 invites us to do. We bring ourselves honestly before God. We pause and we remember, we pray these prayers and we find that we're not just saying them as Asaph. We're not just saying them as Israel. We're not just saying them as Holy Scripture, though they are all of those things. We are saying them in this moment, just as we are, just where we find ourselves. Even Abby with all of her worries, as Kendi, as Jack, as Raul, as Brad. And maybe it's not instantaneous, it's not formulaic, but we find that over time there's this internal shift and we can say too, oh, I get it now. I understand. I'm not just reading these words about hope on a page, about a story that happened all those years ago. That's not it at all. This is a story that's mine. I've been swept up into it. I want to take a moment and fast forward us now, just a thousand years or so from when this psalm was written to the very same night that Jesus washed Peter's exposed feet. On that same night, scripture tells us Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he poured the wine. And what did he tell his disciples to do when they came together and ate and drank? He said, as often as you do this, remember me. There's that word again, that invitation. But this time, Jesus wasn't just talking about the Red Sea parting as spectacular as that event was. Now he's talking about his own death and his own life and resurrection. So when Jesus tells his disciples, remember me, he's actively bringing them into the story of hope, of victory, of life. He's saying, when you remember me, this resurrection thing, it is your story too. Live in it. Be with me in it. Let it be the truest thing about your life, come what may. And the disciples, they would take this advice, they would remember, and it served not just to calm their present experience of anxiety, but it actually empowered them to move into the world as different people, as people of hope, Hopeful people where before they had no hope. Loving people whereas before they acted in their own selfish interests. Courageous people whereas before they'd been paralyzed by fear. Friends, we live in a world too often tragically stuck in that injured imagination. Desperate, desperate to be swept up into a better memory, to a better story. And we don't just will ourselves out of that place. We remember from one moment to the next. And it changes us. And so as we close today um, in worship together, I'm simply going to read these ancient words from Psalm 77. And as I do that, wherever you're listening from in this moment, church, 
I'll invite you to simply hear these words, but don't just hear them, personalize them. Friends, this is your story. This is our story. Let's remember together. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made your way known, your strength known among the peoples. You have, by your power, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The water saw you, O God. The water saw you. They were in anguish. The deep also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. Amen. Let's respond and worship together.
So church, we've joined together in spirit today, and now we get to go out together in spirit to be the people of God. When I was getting ready this morning, I thought, this is a situation like none other. What does one wear to worship when it's going to be just online? And I thought, we're, we feel alone here in Seattle, but we're not alone. I reach for this top that came to me because a woman in Rwanda rose up out of the ashes of what that country went through. And she became a person who sews and who creates and who makes a difference in the world. And friends, that's who God invites us to be. I thought of the scripture that comes to us out of Hebrews chapter 12, and it says this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Eugene Peterson calls those every block, every stumbling block, and every sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So friends, might we do that? Might the 1,500 of us who just watched this morning, might we become 3,000 or 30,000? Might we become the people of love, and hope and courage that this city needs today. Maybe for you, it's just a little step. It's, it's International Women's Sunday. Maybe you're just going to write a note to a woman who's made a difference in your life. Maybe you're going to remember a neighbor. Maybe you've got a retirement community or a nursing home down the street from you, and you just want to drop a note by and say, we're thinking of you. Maybe you can seek to get together in a small group, just like the church has done over thousands of years to proclaim the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So friends, go with this blessing. Take a deep breath. Selah. And may the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with you and those you love this day and to all eternity. And all of God's people said, Amen. Go in peace. We hope to gather soon in person or online.